everyone so this is a new segment that i'm gonna start experimenting with called medtech mentor so i have a youtube page uh, called medtech mentor where i try and upload uh, a lot of videos on essentially the life science industry uh medtech uh, biotech and pharma you know around uh, marketing, sales, uh, technology adoption. And so this will be the first installment of it. I'm looking forward to having some great guests and expand on more topics because I've gotten a lot of feedback from uh, my fantastic audience and followers, which I'm very grateful for as to what they want to see more of. And so um, rather than creating a completely different podcast, maybe I'll do that. I don't think so. You can just search uh, MedTech Mentor and then you'll see the different uh, episodes for this. So the one that I'm going to talk about today, and I have the book in front of me, um, it's around a topic about what many people know as the technology adoption curve. So many of us know about the uh, great book Crossing the Chasm by Jeff Moore, but the grandfather of that book, yep, that's right, I said there's a grandfather of it, is Diffusion of Innovations by Everett M. Rogers. Unfortunately, Everett Rogers passed away many years ago. I wish I would have had a chance to meet and interview him. And this is a very heavy book, and essentially it compiles all the research for the last like 50, 100 years on how innovation is diffused and how it is adopted. Uh, things from uh, pharma to hybrid corn in Nebraska, um, and so I wanted to talk about some of these uh, topics and kind of make this as, an, as a short intro to it and really position it against this concept that I've, I've talked about for many years about using digital uh, channels and social media to commercialize products, especially in medical devices. This is where our customers are having conversations on a daily basis. And so it's kind of common sense that um, healthcare companies should be there as well. So I'm going to start with this quote by Niccolo Machiavelli. And the quote says this, it must be remembered that there is nothing more difficult to plan, more doubtful of success, nor more dangerous to manage than a new system. For the initiator has the enmity of all who would profit by the preservation of the old institution and merely lukewarm defenders in those who gain by the new ones. Now, Getting a new idea uh, adopted is very difficult, especially if it's a technology. And even when the advantages are glaringly obvious, we, we know this. Innovation is definitely not for the faint of heart. And that's why the startup life is fun and, and exciting on the outside. But when you're in it, it's a grind. You, you have to have thick skin for it. So for every medical device, biotech, pharma, and, and tech company, any company really out there, goes through this exercise of answering the question, how do we speed up adoption, right? That's how you get to success. Do you have traction, right? And, and what that means is that are people adopting your product? And the answer is found in the great innovation work compiled and pioneered by uh, Mr. Everett Rogers and how in innovation diffusion occurs. And when we think about innovation and specifically diffusion, diffusion is a social change. A social change. That's how I want you to think about diffusion. It's it's the process in which an innovation is communicated through certain channels, and and that's done over time, among members of that social system, right? Now, communication. If we think about communication, it's a process in which participants will create, 
and share information with one another in order to reach a mutual understanding. I read that directly uh, from my notes. And the reason why I mention this is that many people actually forget the simple definitions and thus overlook the first principles of technology adoption and diffusion. So for years I've written and spoken about the power of social media and how this has really evolved to be a primary channel for innovation, diffusion, not just in healthcare, but really all industries, but we're foc our focus here is healthcare, right? Um, so in this piece, I'm going to cover diffusion, uh, innovation, uh, uh, innovation of diffusion, uh, or diffusions of innovations. <laughs> a little tongue twister there, and the role of key opinion leaders have on social influ influence and adoption of technology. So let's start with a classic example, which is Pfizer's drug diffusion. Right, this is a, a case study that many people don't know about. So Pfizer was looking for drug diffusion investigation in one of its most famous cases that explains the paradigm of how innovation spreads. And the most noted impact of this study, which was done at Columbia University, was to orient future diffusion research toward investigating interpersonal networks. And this is done, you know, decades ago, uh, through which there's a subjective evaluation of an, an innovation and it's exchanged among the individuals of a system. AKA, people have a story in their head, that story gives them the feeling, and then that feeling is exchanged through information among people in a network, okay? Now this study, it, it illuminated the nature of interpersonal diffusion networks and suggested the role that opinion leaders play in the takeoff of the S-shaped diffusion curve. Now, I know many of you are familiar with the uh, bell-shaped curve, or essentially a hill, right? That's from the crossing the chasm. What I want you to picture in your mind is on the y-axis, up and down, vertical axis, that's going to be adoption, and the x-axis, the horizontal axis, will be time. And I want you to picture a line going out, then gr going upwards, and then plateauing off, and then going up again, just like an S. Okay. Now, what the Columbia study clearly established was that innovation diffusion was a social process. Okay. So, a mar the market research de department of Pfizer provided a grant, you know, about forty grand. This is back in the day to three Columbia University sociologists to conduct the study in this diffusion, uh, in, in this drug diffusion study. And this is back in 1954. Now, Pfizer originally wanted to know if the advertisements it purchased in medical journals were influential in diffusing the company's new drugs. Right? Classic marketing product. We spend money on this ad, is this actually helping drive revenue? So the sociologists decided to convert that market research question into an important diffusion study of interpersonal communication networks. And we're very grateful that they did that because unfortunately marketers don't know a damn thing when it comes to data. It's changing now because we have a lot of uh, talented uh, uh, product people and people who have experience with data going into marketing, but mo historically marketers, I think can be very short-sighted on looking at, okay, is this driving revenue? Is this working, right? And there's sort of a deeper, more effective question to ask. So the pilot study of the spread of the new drug was carried out. There are 33 doctors in, New England, in a New England town, and the main study was conducted uh, with the main study being conducted in four cities in Illinois. So the four cities were Peoria, Bloomington, Quincy, and Galesburg. Now the drug study analyzed the diffusion of a new antibiotic, tetracycline, that appeared first in 1953. So the drug had been trialed, uh, tried at least, by, at least once by 87% of Illinois doctors in the study. Um, who had been using other uh, two other closely related quote-unquote miracle drugs belonging to the same antibiotic family. Now, the new drug, 
superseded an existing idea in that tetracycline's main advantage over earlier antibiotics was it had fewer side effects. That's the benefit of tetracycline. Okay. Now, the sociologists interviewed 125 general practitioners, internists, and pediatricians in these four Illinois cities. Okay. These were 85% of the doctors practicing the specialties where the drug was important, right? So you have a great, solid group uh, to pull the data from. Okay. The 125 doctors, they were sociometrically designated 103 additional doctors in other specialties as their network partners. Okay. 125 doctors, then they designate 103 additional ones that are in other specialties that's in their network. So the total sample is about 228 doctors that made up 64% of all doctors, doctors practicing in all in the four cities. Now, I'm going through a lot of numbers, but you have to, the main reason why is that you have to stick with me here to understand that this is a really good sample side and, and percentage-wise, it, 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 it's a good sampling of the bulk of these physicians, okay? So the objective measure of each doctor's time of adoption was obtained from the record of the pharmacy prescriptions written by the doctors in the study, okay? Now, here's the three very interesting, and maybe this might sound obvious, but I don't think it's as obvious as people find it to be, three things that Pfizer found in the study. Number one, innovative doctors attended more out-of-town medical conferences than the later adopters. Innovative doctors have social networks that extended outside of their local system, right? Meaning outside of the city that they practiced in. And then innovative doctors served wealthier patients and thus had a more wealthy practice. And so the most important finding of the study was that it dealt with interpersonal diffusion networks, right? Uh, AKA, you know, networking effects, right? And again, this is not rocket science, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a concept that's often overlooked. So the study, which was done by Coleman, Coleman and his colleagues, they found that almost all of the opinion leaders defined as doctors who received uh, three or more sociometric choices as social friends had adopted tetracycline by month eight of the 17-month diffusion period, right? I'm going to read that to you again, that almost all of the opinion leaders defined as doctors who had three or more sociometric choices as social friends had adopted the antibiotic by month eight of 17, right? <clears throat> So at this point, right, when you have that adoption, the S-shaped diffusion curve for opinion leaders, uh, followers really took off, meaning that once those opinion leaders, right, who had three or more sociometric choices as social friends, which means they had a good network and they had, they had influence, when they adopt by month eight, that's when you see that S-shaped curve take off. And one of the reasons for that S-shaped curve is that once the opinion leaders in a system, in any system, whether it's healthcare or tech or anything else, once they adopt, then they convey a subjective, subjective evaluation of the innovation, aka the feeling they have about the story that they put in their head to the many network partners. And then those network partners are thereby influenced to adopt this new idea or new technology. The point, the point in time in which this critical mass of doctors adopted and the S-shaped curve really took off is really this key factor in the diffusion process, 
right? And and a great example of this is when we see in social media with influencers. So let me jump now into talking about key opinion leaders. So key opinion leaders, as many buddy, as anybody who's listening to this from uh, the healthcare world knows, they're vital to any innovation diffusion to occur. Opinion leadership defined very simply, it's the degree to which an individual is able to informally influence other individuals' attitudes or behaviors in a desired way with relative frequency. AKA, if Dr. So-and-so says that X technology is really valuable, that frequently and with consistency, you can expect other people to adopt. So uh, in the spine world, if it's uh, Larry Lenke, who's, who's a pioneer, if he says a certain technique or product is valuable, a lot of people, a lot of physicians are moved and they're influenced by that because we look for that. From a psychological standpoint, our brain doesn't have the time to validate all these different variables constantly throughout the day. And, and this is not just innovation. This is like, what are we going to eat? Where are we going to go for lunch? All these different things. And you see this even in the venture capital world. So if a startup has been, let's say, uh, received a $1 million check from Sequoia, well, then that gets Andreessen Horowitz. That gets a lot of other people's um, attention because they've been validated by a quote-unquote opinion leader, whether it's an entity or an individual. Um and so this phenomenon, it really took off broadly with the introduction of key opinion leaders on social media. So that's influencers, right? And this added a depth of complexity to innovation diffusion because the common person essentially was able to have more influence than expected, right? You know, there, there are people who have very uh, small Instagram followings, but they are able to influence adoption much more than like a huge celebrity would. Right. That's why micro influencers came up. So you're better off as a consumer brand sometimes um, spending a hundred thousand dollars on I don't know twenty, thirty, forty, fifty micro influencers than a million dollar on just like one celebrity. Right. The same holds true, believe it or not, and this is my hypothesis. Same holds true in the medical world. As many of the top key opinion leaders on social media who are physicians are often not the heads of departments. Rather, if you look, especially on Twitter, they're usually a very passionate individual who's consistently showing up online, either on a weekly or even daily basis, to add value through their content. Journal publications, updates on technology, updates, you know, during COVID-19, it's updates from the front line, right? And the behavior of these type of opinion leaders is important to the rate of the adoption of an innovation in a system. Okay, the innovation diffusion curve is S-shaped because once opinion leaders and the right ones adopt and begin telling others, the number of the adopters per unit of time really takes off in an exponential curve. Right now, this is an important point that I need to highlight, and we can. I'll introduce this section by calling it mass media to social media. So. 50, 60 years ago, there was this concept called a hypodermic needle theory, right? And this is a linear communication theory which suggests that media messages are injected directly into the brains of a passive audience, right? So you have the mass media, they come out with a message, they subconsciously, subliminally uh, inject it in the brains of people, and then you know you have adoption and and and, and innovation goes off, right? This this Hypothermic, uh, hypodermic uh, needle theory suggests that there's a very powerful and direct flow of information from the sender, 
right, being the mass media, to the receiver. And it suggests that media messages essentially, again, as I mentioned before, are injected straight into the passive audience, which is immediately influenced by the message. The theory suggests that mass media could influence a very, very large group of people directly and uniformly just by injecting them with appropriate messages that are designed to trigger a desired response or influence. There's no secret or reason or, or wonder why if you look at, you know, third world and if you look at dictators, what's the first entity that usually dictators want to take over after, let's say, in the military? It's the news. It's journalism, right? It's the media. Why? Because messaging and 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 controlling the narrative is everything right there's there's company you know what do you think google and facebook and twitter why did they build billion dollar empires essentially it's a it's the control and influence of information right um the problem with this model is that it suggests that we're all the same and we all respond to media messages in the same way right so the media was, the, and of course, there's a problem with that. I'm going to get to that in a moment. So the media was seen as conveying messages to essentially atomized masses of individuals. And perfect examples of how this was used, if we look at the power of media in, you know, in influencing historical events, here are three big ones. The role of the Hearst newspapers when it came to getting public support for the Spanish-American War. Um, power of Nazi leader Joseph Goebbels and using his propaganda system during World War II. And of course, the most famous uh, one popularized by uh, the TV show Mad Men, the influence of Madison Avenue in New York uh, and advertising agencies on consumer and voting behavior in the United States now. The thing is that the model was eventually found to be too simple and mechanistic to give an accurate account of media effects. It just, it, it, it was too simple. It just, human uh, psychology and, and, and social uh, and let's say mass behavior is a little bit more complicated than that. And again, the mistake that was found is that it ignored the role of opinion leaders. And so Paul Lazarfield, again of Columbia, uh, he was a pioneer in mass communications. He directed the research to provide this updated model to the theory that they call now the two-step flow model. Right, which is the mass media could influence a very large group of people directly and uniformly by shooting or injecting them with appropriate messages designed to trigger a desired response. And this is even more effective when you do it towards key opinion leaders. Right. So if you took the model of diffusing a message and you can imagine, imagine the mass media is a, is a, uh, a showerhead and all the uh, messages are coming out and trying to uh, shower like one little uh, one air, you know multiple little areas you know you may you may hit some things you may not but the better route is imagine instead that you have instead of thousands of endpoints let's say you have 10 10 endpoints 10 opinion leaders who you influence with a message and each of those 10 has an influence of thousands right that's the network effect that's why when you look at political campaigns, look, we just went through an election. Is it a surprise why a lot of the uh, politicians, the moment a celebrity or a famous person or an author or something endorses them, they take that and they uh, push it out? Because they know that between them directly influencing uh, uh, um, a group of people and let's say a key opinion leader, it's gonna be better for the KOL, right? So you get one celebrity who maybe influences men, 18 to 24. You get another influencer, who uh, a key opinion leader who's very influential with uh, stay-at-home moms, right? 
So in this two-step flow model, this the, this is essentially what, what occurs. Step one, it's informational. The media transfers the information to opinion leaders. And step two, this is the influence. Those opinion leaders transfer information to followers with the spread of interpersonal influence. There's there's that word again, interpersonal influence. So what the and again, not every model is perfect, right? But you have to take these models in steps and understand them. So what what this model did not recognize was that the role of different communication sources or channels at various stages in the innovation decision process, right? And again, these models have become more sophisticated because we're talking about you know a few decades ago compared to now we have something like social media. Rogers highlights this in his book and shows that individuals they pass through these five steps, right? Number one, knowledge of innovation. Number two, persuasion. Number three, decision to adopt or reject said innovation. Four is implementation. And number five, confirmation of the decision, right? And mass communication channels are primarily knowledge creators, right? Knowledge creators. Again, it's an informational exchange, whereas interpersonal networks are more important in persuading individuals to adopt or reject. The mistake that healthcare companies make is that, is, is that they assume that mass communication channels such as social media are both knowledge creators and persuasion networks. They're not. They are not persuasion networks without the influence and involvement of opinion leaders, right? And this idea was really hidden in the original two-step model because the time sequence involved in an individual's innovation decision-making process was ignored. So um, the, such source and channel differences at the knowledge uh, level versus the persuasion stages usually exist for both opinion leaders and followers. So you know, opinion leaders are not only individuals to use mass communication channels as the original two-step model suggested right? It's also the followers. And again, this is why social media is so powerful. So the adaptation of this model has gone through an evolution to what we see, in my opinion, in social media today. And I want to kind of end with this last section, which is influence of social systems. So a social system is a kind of collective learning system in which the experiences of early adopters of innovation is transmitted through interpersonal networks, and then that determines the rate of adoption by their followers, right? Forget about life sciences and healthcare. Think about just your basic products, right? Think about consumer products you've seen take off. Think about when the iPhone came out, right? Such learning in a social system can, of course, take a negative turn if that innovation is not efficacious in solving a problem, right? And we've seen plenty of companies just get absolutely blasted on, on like not just LinkedIn, but especially Twitter, right? So if we go back to the pharma example, if the new drug wasn't very effective in solving the innovative doctor's problem, they would have quickly passed their dissatisfaction with the new drug to their peers. And this will happen even faster today because back then they had to wait to see their peers either in the hospital or at a conference or something. Now they're exchanging this, this information and persuading one another in real time every day on social media. If you don't believe me, go and search hashtag med Twitter and hashtag med ed on, on Twitter and go look at how many conversations are being had by doctors in real time. So then the S-shaped curve, a uh, diffusion curve that we talked about would have had displayed a much slower rate of adoption. So again, instead of like a short, quick S-shaped curve that goes up in adoption, it would have been l elongated and much uh, uh, wider 
Um, so essentially, it, it might have even reached a plateau and even declined as a result of widespread uh, discontinuance of tetracycline, aka it went up in adoption, then it plateaued, and it just went down because people didn't see the value of it. That's not what happened, of course, but just an example. So the social system in which an innovation, diffu uh, innovation diffuses acts prime like a participatory democracy, if, if you want to call it that, in which the aggregated individual adoption decisions of the people in that group really represents a consensus vote on the new idea. That's why it's important to not only target the right key opinion leaders, right? And that doesn't mean, look, any idiot can go and say, oh, we should just target you know, the top academic physicians, you have to start looking at who are the younger up and comers, the ones who are in the departments who have a lot of say, and maybe not through title, but through their network can influence more. So a doctor's position in the communication network of physicians in their community, it also has really important consequences for a doctor's innovativeness. So just as an example, individuals who are isolates, which was defined as doctors who are not connected to anyone else, they took actually 9.5 months on average to a top tetracycline versus the non-isolates, the ones who were connected, took about 7.9 months, right? So again, it's all about, you know, who's, who's connected. So being connected based on this study and this back, you know, in the 50s, actually meant being innovative. So the doctors also had plenty of information about the new drug. So tetracycline had gone through a lot of randomized controlled clinical trials by the pharma firms, and then, uh, and of course, universities prior to its release to the medical community. So the results of those evaluations were essentially communi communicated, one, in medical journals to, you know, in, in articles, and also by what I like to call, I'll call them detail men or pharma reps who contacted the, doctor, contacted the doctors and then gave them like reprints of the journal articles, right? So those kind of promotional activities helped create the awareness of the innovation in the medical community, but such scientific evaluation of the new, new drug was not sufficient enough just to persuade the average doctor to adopt. This is another mistake that healthcare companies make, medical device companies especially, is that you think that if you come out with a great clinical study, that's going to be enough to adopt. That's not the case. I, I mentioned this so many times that we're human beings are not logical, right? Even when we, we think we're being logical, we're not, right? We make all of our decisions based off emotions and we rationalize backwards based on logical things like data or, 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 or whatnot. But we're in fact, you know, influenced by a variety of different things. And we've seen this so many times in the medical community where we come out with an innovation it, it clearly shows superiority in clinical trials, all these things. You don't see 100% adoption, right? Why is that? You have to ask that question. Why? So subjective evaluations of a new, whether it's a new drug or new innovation, based on personal experience of each doctor's peers was, was a key in convincing the average or typical doc, doctor to adopt the drug with his or her, her own patients. The crucial role of this interpersonal network communication and the diffusion of tetracycline, this is what led James Coleman and his colleagues to investigate which doctors talk to whom. So why had one respondent chosen one, two, or three other doctors out of, let's say, hundreds in the community to be his or best friends, right? That's another question, right? How do they how do they get this network? So back then there was a dyadic network analysis disclosed, um, and that's just a really famous, uh, a really fancy way of just saying they just did an analysis. It showed that religion and age were the main determinants of friendship links, and hometown and medical school attended was also of some importance. But the main reasons for the person-to-person -person links in the medical community 
were professional affiliations such as belonging to the same hospital or clinical or clinic as another doctor or participating in an office partnership. So the Columbia study showed the important role of interpersonal networks in this diffusion process. And more than anything else, it was the social power of peers talking to peers about the innovation that led to the adoption of the new idea. And so what I recommend is to go on these channels, go on LinkedIn, go on social media. You know, uh, if you don't believe me, go see it with your own eyes, right? This is happening in real time. You have access to this information. You do not have to hire a market research company to tell you these things. Even on Facebook, talk to your physician. There are a lot of private Facebook groups with 100, 200, 300 surgeons who discuss new technologies, new procedures, et cetera, et cetera, because they're trying to control those things themselves, right? Finding a way to influence those communities and do it in a um, in a respectful way, in a thoughtful way, is the way to go. And I want to end with this one quote again from Machiavelli and the Prince. And the quote goes like this. There is nothing more difficult to plan, more doubtful of success, nor more dangerous to manage than the creation of a new order of things. Whenever his enemies have the ability to attack the innovator, they do so with the passion of partisans, while the others defend him sluggishly so that the innovator and his parry alike are vulnerable. And so I leave you with this to think about. Innovation is not for the faint of heart. Sharpen your mind, harden your heart, and open your eyes and ears. And then burn the boats. Good luck. Thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of The Mind Loom. For questions that you'd like to submit, please email mindloomboom at gmail.com. That's mindloomboom at gmail.com.